Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is someone who's become a dear, dear friend over the last several years. Uh, we were last together in your home at uh, on Trafalgar Square, I believe. Actually, we had a lunch after that, I think, Tembi. I think we did. Yeah, but we were together at the closing night dinner of Advertising Week Europe in March of 2019 at the South African Embassy, just off Trafalgar Square. My guest today is the High Commissioner to the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, the wonderful Tembi Tambo. Welcome, Tembi. Thank you so much, Matt. It's lovely to hear your voice and to see you again after so long. It, it is indeed. So, Tembi, I, I want to start, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit, and I want to go back even before you were born. And I want to talk about your mother, Adelaide, and an incident in 1939 when she was eyewitness to uh, the mistreatment of your grandfather. I think he was about 82 years old at that time and how that shaped her. We're gonna talk about your father, the legendary Oliver Tambo, but I wanna start by talking about your mom, Adelaide, and what shaped her. And I know she was active throughout her entire life until she passed about 13, 14 years ago um, as a nurse taking care of people. She was an incredibly passionate, kind woman, but let's go back and talk about what shaped her an incident when she was about 10 years old. Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it comes from um, a cultural uh, tradition. And uh, the most important thing as an African child is respect that you give to your elders. And so a child or a younger person has to speak to an elder person in a very particular way. Um, in this situation, uh, this young uh, Afrikaans policeman was referring to my grandfather as boy. And it's just simply not done. And she was so affronted and appalled by that. Um, and the fact that she quickly understood that the grandfather was not keeping quiet because um, he couldn't have the words to respond, but that it wouldn't have been wise for him to respond. And it started her, I think, noticing more and more these kinds of injustices. It wasn't the only one that she witnessed, of course, towards family members, but in this particular instance, it, it was a, a life-changing event and um, it shaped her um, and made the notion of justice very, very sharp in her mind. And so she looked for ways in which to become part of something that would allow her to fight against this kind of injustice, this, this disrespect for tradition and for the people that she loved. Um, and <clears throat> so she tried to join the African National Congress when she was 15, but of course she was too young, so they wouldn't let her. In the end, however, I think she did uh, manage to sneak her way in and she became very active 
um, within them, running messages and doing all sorts of things. Um, and uh, she started to move her way through the organization and uh, she was very committed as were so many other women. And she was part of, of the Women's March in 1956, uh, where 20,000 um, women of South Africa, all races, religions, uh, marched together to Pretoria to say, we're standing against uh, your injustice. We're standing against the past laws uh, that seek to keep us um, prisoners in certain parts of the, of the country. And uh, she was part of that. She was, she was very, very active in that. So she knew exactly what it was she wanted out of life. And she wanted to make sure that this uh, apartheid system came to a, an abrupt end. And, and the role of women, certainly not lost in history, but like so much of history, dominated by men. But the women of South Africa played such a seminal role. And I, I have very vivid memories when we were in Johannesburg um, and it leaves you stunned in silence seeing the women's prison on Constitution Hill. Uh, and uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about your mom uh, because the women played such an important part in the movement. Uh, and I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, I think that the pe people who know, know, um, I don't think any of our history is talked about enough to be quite frank. Um, but that's another topic for another day. Um, the women were very, very well organized and uh, were doing very well on their own. Um, and um, then they, they, there were meetings and there were discussions held and um, they were uh, invited to join. Um, uh, but they insisted on maintaining their own separate organization uh, precisely because they did not want to be invisible. So it, they became um, ultimately the women's, the ANC Women's League um, with their own president, with their own treasurer general, with their own secretary general. And it was into this organization that women were groomed for leadership um, and were deployed um, uh, for uh, active roles wherever they were sent. Um, and it still is a, 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 an organization that demands respect. Um, I can't think of any woman of prominence in South African uh, liberation history who was not part of the Women's League. Um, so the women were very, very clear that uh, they didn't need the men. And um, I remember uh, at some point, I can't quite remember the date, it must have been, I'm sure, in the 60s, uh, when my father was at a conference and he said to the women, he said, it's your job to teach us what we must do and how we must behave. But it's equally your job to get out of the kitchen and to fight. And um, within the ANC, I think that looking back at the representatives that were deployed around the world, a great many of them were women and a great many of them were sent um, with, uh, from their point of view, with quite a bit of trepidation, 
Because don't forget that many people were not widely traveled. They, they, they didn't know the Western world and they were thrown into it and they had to very quickly adapt. Um, and they had to very quickly make friends wherever they were. Um, very hard times, very lonely times for um, our activists and our comrades in those days. But, you know, there they were and, and here they are and many have passed on, may they rest in peace. But the role of women in the liberation struggle, hugely important. Um, the role of women in uh, the, um, the making of South Africa into a democracy, um, hugely important. The role of women um, when South Africa became a democracy as uh, members of parliament, hugely important. So I think that there is a lot more to be said and a lot more women need to be recognized. Um, no doubt going down the road, that will all start to come out. I think that our history has sadly been neglected. Um, and I hope that uh, in the teaching of it in schools, uh, that will be corrected and at university level, of course, much more. I hope so too. So while your mom is very active in the movement, she also finds the time to become a nurse. And somewhere along the line, give or take, uh, in the mid 50s, she meets your father, Oliver, at a meeting of, I think, the Eastern Branch, Eastern township branch of the ANC mm -hmm. and they fall in love and they marry. But during an incredibly difficult time, it was right around the time of the treason trial. That must have been an incredible mix of emotions for your mother and father at that time. I don't think so, because they they knew what they'd signed up for. And um, they were really great partners and they discussed things. And of course, they would have known that something was in the air and they would have known <clears throat> what that something was likely to be. Um, and they would have discussed what would happen should he be arrested. Um, and uh, she, she's, she has said that she was quite ready to go to the prison and get married there. Um, so <clears throat> I, 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 don't, I don't think, I don't think our freedom fighters were emotional because the emotion had already been and gone, if that makes sense. It, it created the outrage and, and the, the determination to see change. And once they had committed to that, everything else kind of had a logical process. If this must happen, then so be it. If that negative thing must happen, then so be that. But what will not, what will not happen is um, we will not give in and we will not give up. And somewhere along the line, they were asked or they made the decision to leave South Africa and to go to London. Can you tell me about that? Yes, the, my father was deployed. He, he, didn't, um, he didn't make the decision. He was sent uh, by the ANC leadership um, to leave the country because so much of the leadership had been arrested and imprisoned. Um, and so he was sent to tell the world what was happening in South Africa and to prepare uh, for change of government. And so that's what he did. 
um, he went and he told the world about what was happening in South Africa. And it, um, it was a, a massive, massive responsibility and a huge task. But he was never one to be scared of a challenge. He was fearless. He had tremendous courage and he was quite brilliant. So he, he came up with how to do it. And he basically seeded what you would now call embassies um, around the world. Um, and he managed to put the ANC in a position whereby when he was in Africa, he was treated like a head of state. Um, and um, our representatives were considered to be our ambassadors abroad, which is effectively what they were. And it was very wonderful to see that when we became a democracy, those very same representatives were our first diplomats. Amazing. And all those years later, you would follow in his footsteps. <laughs> so, Tembi, let's go back and talk a little bit more about your dad. He and Nelson Mandela were law partners. Uh, and uh, what are your remembrances of that? early, early part of your dad's life. Surely they shared many, many stories with you. Um, and I'd also love to talk about the importance of London in the movement. London was really the global headquarters for the anti-apartheid movement. And I think outside of the UK and London here in America, I think we don't understand very much of that. No, um, London was extremely important. As far as my, my parents' relationship, with Uncle Nelson was concerned, my father's particularly. Well, of course, I mean, I, I would have had no knowledge of it at all um, because by the time I was old enough to understand much of what had happened, he'd already been incarcerated for quite some time. Um, and my father was very discreet um, and didn't really talk about the people in his past back home, wisely so, because we were, we were spied on all the time. And there were listening devices around all the time. And he wouldn't want to have said anything inadvertently that could be used against the people back home or their families. So we didn't get to hear a great deal. We only heard um, when we went back to South Africa, when the ANC was um, unbanned for three weeks under President de Klerk. And uh, by then, Uncle Nelson was out of jail. Uncle Walter was out of jail. And there was my father. Sadly, he'd had a stroke. But to see these three best friends, because Uncle Walter was also part of their law practice, Walter Sisulu, and um, to see them reunited and to see them, it was just like they were boys again, like young men again, laughing, uh, making jokes at each other, teasing each other, reminiscing. It was absolutely wonderful. It was, it was wonderful to see. Um, and for us as children, it was a dream come true because it was the one thing that we would pray. We didn't pray very much as children, um, but the one prayer that we said, I think all the time was that we prayed that our parents would die in South Africa. And, you know, God being ever faithful, that's exactly what happened. So we were very happy to see them back home. Um, as far as London was concerned, you know, of course, the, the, the issue with the United Kingdom was its role in the history of South Africa. Uh, as a, then one of its most um, enthusiastic allies and a massive trading partner. And um, 
it was one of the countries that really mobilized, along with the Scandinavian countries, um, really mobilized around the notion of um, the end of apartheid. And uh, many um, British, including clerics, spent a great deal of time fighting for the freedom of South Africa. Uh, many members of parliament spent a lot of time um, speaking out against apartheid. And of course, it was one of the most glamorous um, embassies that South Africa had on Trafalgar Square, highly, highly visible. And so it was wonderful to be able to use it as a form of protest and to use London as a base to reach out to the rest of Europe and to be able to meet with um, other comrades who were posted um, around the world. They would come to the UK um, and particularly after uh, 1976, a lot of young South Africans um, left the country because they, we, we by then had Nkonto with Caesar, which was meaning spear of the nation, the military wing. And they wanted to join and take up arms and fight against the anti-apartheid movement. But my father being extremely wise, um, said to them, first of all, you have to go and study because we'll need people to run the country when we get home. And he managed to organize scholarships um, and many of them studied in communist countries and in Scandinavian countries. Fantastic. And you grew up in London, in Muswell Hill. Uh, and I remember the last time we were together, it was around the time of dedication of a statue honoring your father. Um, but talk about, you know, your, your father is a, is a legend of incredible stature and incredible importance in history. But to you, he was just your dad. And like any of us as children, I think it's very hard for us to understand whether our parents are incredibly accomplished or just mom and dad. As children, they're just your mother and father. Talk about you know, your remembrances of growing up in Muswell Hill and um, what that must have been like for you. Uh, you know, in just an incredibly unique story, Tambi. I think that we, we became aware at quite a young age, certainly before, um, before I was 10, maybe eight, that there was something slightly different about our parents. Um, number one, the people who would come to our house, we were, the house was always full of people. It wasn't a house, it was a maisonette we lived in um, at, that, at that time, um, but it was always full of people. And these people just kept coming, they kept coming and they kept coming. And um, we became aware of uh, a car that was always parked outside our house. And my mother explained to us that this was the South African secret police and that we must be very, very careful um, where we went and we must always keep our, our wits about us and um, look around and be very careful. Because at one point, I, there, there was an attempt to kidnap me. And um, we became aware of the fact that people treated him in a particular way when he was at home. 
uh, which wasn't very often. It was only a couple of times a year anyway. But we, we understood the story. We heard snippets of things from different people. And of course, my mother would tell us what was going on as she received news. And so we knew what was going on. We knew what he was fighting for. We knew why he was never at home. We knew that he lived in incredible danger. Um, and we knew that we got to see him twice a year. But we also, for us, that twice a year was normal. We, we had nothing to compare it to. Um, so our, our memories of our father coming home would always be that he would, he would have a little something for us, always a very little something. Um, but mainly it was the smile and he had the ability to make you feel so special and so smart and so clever. Um, and one just wasn't just us. I think everybody wanted to please him. He, he just had that kind of personality that everybody wanted to please him and wanted his approval. And we were no different. Um, and so what would happen as we got older is that he would try to time his visits to the occasions when we were would be at school. We were all at boarding school so that my mother could work. Um, and then he and her would come down. They'd pick us all up from our different schools and we would go driving around Sussex, um, which is further south in London. Um, and they would sing. My father was a great chorister. He loved singing and he loved conducting and he was highly religious as was my mother. So they would sing hymns. And so we'd sit in the car and we'd listen to them singing hymns and we'd learn the hymns. And so we would be able to join in uh, as we continue to grow. And it, but those were our special moments. Um, and then as he made more impact um, with the message that he was giving, and as more world leaders started listening to him and inviting him to speak, it gave him an opportunity to pass through the United Kingdom slightly more often than he would normally do. And so, of course, it was an absolute delight for me um, that he could be there. He came specially for my wedding and um, he, he met my three eldest grandchildren. Um, no, in fact, he met all four. He knew all four of them. Um, so, you know, those were special times as well. But by the time number four came, he was already in South Africa, having had a stroke. Um, he was the kind of person, I don't think he could help himself. He was a teacher. And so he taught, he taught us. And one of the things that you will find from, he was a teacher um, in maths and science in, in his old life back in South Africa. And you will still come across people who he taught. And they would all say what a great teacher he was and the enthusiasm with which he imparted information and the manner in which he, met, he made you understand it and feel so clever that you got it. Um, but actually we weren't the clever ones, he was clever because he managed to make the impossible possible. And um, he was always very proud of us and he always encouraged us. Um, I don't remember him ever saying a bad word to any of us. Amazing, and he impressed the importance of education on you. 
uh, and you became incredibly accomplished, not only with a university degree, but also a law degree. Well, yes, I'd always wanted to do law because he was a lawyer um, and I wanted to be just like him, but I didn't get to it. I, I ended up doing um, a degree in world history and, and English literature, uh, which actually prepared me perfectly for law. Um, and uh, then when I got back to South Africa after a few years, I just thought, well, the university is just around the corner. I might as well apply. I told my mother, I think she thought I'd lost my mind. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't studying law for any other reason than that he'd been a lawyer. Um, I loved it as it happened, but that was the reason. I, I, I didn't really see myself doing anything particularly with the degree. I just wanted to have it. And um, I want to talk more about uh, and get into, you know, conversation about you, Tembi, and your incredible career uh, and postings in Hong Kong and Rome and, of course, London. But let's go back first and whatever you can talk about from December of 1990, when your father was able to return home after 30 years in exile, and you touched on it, that he and Walter Sisulu and Nelson Mandela, when they were together, it was all like they were, you know, young again. Uh, but that must have been uh, quite an incredible period of time. And you and your family all got to go back home eventually. Yes, exactly. Um, my brother went first, um, followed by my sister. And then I was the last one to go back. I went back in 1992. Um, it was a very, very fragile time in, in South Africa. Um, very dangerous time. Um, and uh, there was a real belief that there would be a civil war. And um, as only South Africans can do, the shelves were emptied and uh, people would put barbed wire outside their houses. Um, and they really believed that they, there was going to be a civil war. And um, of course that was never the intention. I mean, the NC knew what they were doing. It was never the intention to destroy the infrastructure of the country. Why would we do that? What would be left for us then to have? So they, they knew exactly what was what. Um, it was um, a time of A lot of hard negotiation. It was a time of incredible hope. It was a time when the exiles, as we were called, had the opportunity to return. And it was the time when a lot of exiles found it very difficult to stay in South Africa because they had grown up in another culture and they they didn't feel South African or feel, let me say, that it's not that they didn't feel South African, they didn't feel as accepted. And I think the phrase, that the, the fact that we were called the exiles um, says a lot. There was a lot of nervousness. We were all unknown quantities. And um, you know, just to give you one example, we had, a, of course, South Africans were seeded all over the world, but there was this one, um, young chap, he was um, an Indian. 
And I was talking to him and he had this Indian accent. So he had this Irish accent. Um, and I said to him, what kind of an Indian are you though? Because you've got this really thick Irish accent. And his response to me was, what, what kind of black are you? Because you sound British. And so we laughed and we joked and we recognized in each other that we didn't see ourselves the way that other people saw us. I don't think any of us ever does. Um, you find out by accident. And so I wasn't aware of the fact that people thought I had a British accent and he didn't really think about his Irish accent. Um, so there was a lot of us getting to know each other again. There was a lot of uh, fear um, trepidation, uncertainty, anxiety uh, from the white community as to how to talk to us blacks, you know, trying to be very politically correct, those who were interested in reconciliation. And of course, for those who weren't, it didn't matter. Um, so we, we, we went through a lot. Those early days were difficult, um, but it was fine because we knew that we were working towards our democracy. And there was nothing that could hold it back. It was going to happen. And then it came and it was tremendous. It was, well, it'll never happen again anywhere in the world. Nothing will ever be like that day. And all these years later, you know, it, it's, it's so uh, disheartening in some ways here we were talking about you know the challenges America has had politically the last few years uh, earlier in our conversation, and uh, it was just this past weekend that in 2021, July of 2021, that a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee was removed in Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. I'd love your perspective on what you see happening over here uh, and the story of reconciliation and the emergence and triumph of democracy in South Africa. You know, I know they say the greatest story ever told is the Bible, but you could argue that uh, the greatest story ever told is the peaceful transition of power. Oh, I've never dared. No, no, no. I never dare. Uh, uh, well, uh, you know, listen, I'm Jewish. I can say that. So, <laughs> so, um, but it's an incredible story of, of passion, of acceptance of enemies and turning enemies into friends. Uh, and yet here in my country, as we sit here today, you can argue that we have, are more polarized racially than we've been at any time, you know, I, I guess the 60s certainly were very difficult here. Um, but, you know, in so many respects, we've gone all the way back to the 1860s um, in the United States. What is your perspective from abroad looking at what's been happening over here? Oh, well, of course, one's saddened always. Um, to see abuse of any form uh, take hold in a society. Um, uh, I think it, it sort of blows hot and cold. Um, 
I think that very often what happens is that we generally tend to try to put bad news behind a closed door and move on and pretend as if everything is okay. And very often we'll do a few things that we think demonstrate that we have been moved by negative events and treatments of people um, without quite getting to the heart of the issue. Um, and I, I'm sure that, you know, America will continue to grow and, and, and keep conversation alive and find ways to talk to each other without judgment. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, because we all know what happens. We all know the wrongs that have been done in your country and in mine. Um, they're facts. It's not about my feelings or my opinion. They, these things happened. And I think it, it behooves us all to just own up, um, own up to them and look for a, a, a genuine way forward. And it's, it's not always easy because um, to walk that straight narrow path and not be tempted to look to the left or the right is a very hard call. There's so many things that pull people's attentions away from looking after their neighbor, for example. Um, so I, I, I have no judgment over any country or society that is battling with um, itself. Um, we've been there, uh, we understand it. Um, and since uh, our independence, we have been there again. Um, uh, we, we, we also had disagreements and things, but I think that the one thing that I could say is uh, to quote um, one of our most revered um, constitutional court judges and um, activists, political activists, um, Justice Albie Sachs, who said that a, a society can be defined by how well they treat the weakest and the worst of us. And I think if one can keep that in mind, it, it helps. Brilliantly said. Okay, so let's move on and let's talk a little bit about you, young lady. So you graduate from law school about 2002 and embark on uh, training to become a diplomat. Uh, and you complete that training about five years later and have had three incredible postings as high commissioner, I guess initially in Hong Kong, then Rome, and now where you are as we sit here today as high commissioner to the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. Can we go back and talk about your road to diplomacy and that first posting in Hong Kong? Yes, well, what had happened was that I left university having done my, my law degree and realized that all the money I'd been working for and saving, I'd spent during the, the course of the law degree, mainly on child support. Um, because by then, of course, I had, you know, my four kids were no longer babies. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway. Um, so I, I did work for a while and my mother would be the one who said to me, uh, when I first returned to South Africa and um, the ANC was recruiting people to go for diplomatic training, and she had mentioned it to me then. And I said, I can't, I've got four children. I've just arrived in the country. I can't leave them and go off and train in, in the Netherlands or wherever. And then when, when an opportunity became available again, I was doing my law degree. 
And um, having finished my law degree, I was looking around for things to do. I went into business for a while. But to be honest, what, what pushed me was my mother passed away. I don't think I'd ever been able to leave her. But in retrospect, I don't think I would have had to. I think she would have, she would have followed me. <laughs> and um, so when she, when she, when that, when she passed away, I, I did look at the opportunity again, and um, I was really blessed. That's the only way I can push it. We had a very, 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 very wise um, director general at the time. His name was Dr. Nsulube, and he sent me to Hong Kong. Um, it was the best thing that anyone could have done to help me learn how to become a diplomat because number one, to be quite frank, I, I didn't even know where Hong Kong was before. Um, and it was out of anyone's sort of radar, but it was still a, a good posting. Nobody was watching me. And it was a small enough mission that I could learn the ins and outs of it and I could make my mistakes in in, in private and it made me understand what my job was. And also he was a great mentor because whenever you needed to see him, he was always available, always. Um, so that really helped me and it gave me confidence. Um, and then, you know, I think sometimes blessings just keep coming. The next thing I knew, um, I, was, I was invited to go to Italy, which was tremendous as you can imagine. And then um, here I am now in the United Kingdom. So it's been the most tremendous journey. Um, I've been so privileged and so extremely honored um, because I just always wanted to do something of use for my country. Um, and that I was given the opportunity was, you know, a gift from God really. Incredible story. So take us behind the curtain, Tembi. Few of us understand what the job of high commissioner is in America. Here, we would call you ambassador. It's two different sets of nomenclature that say the same thing. Um, obviously, you're a, a passionate and fierce advocate for South Africa. Um, but talk about the job of being a high commissioner and, uh, you know, let's talk about it in non-COVID times, if you will. Um, and then we'll talk about the last year, of course. But take us behind the curtain. What is the job of the High Commissioner? And what are your most important priorities? I think basically simply said, look, we're, we, we're the High Commission. Because going back again to colonial days, we were... Um, under the British monarchy. And so we were part of the Commonwealth. And that's why we are high commissioners um, rather than ambassadors. It's the link to the royal family. Um, um, but the job of, of, of being a high commissioner or an ambassador is I, I believe to, to make friends for your country and to make people understand your country and to dispel some of the, the myths and the, the disinformation that sits out there. Um, and to let people understand that every country has problems. So best thing is not to be too judgmental. 
um, because we all have to deal with it in our own way. We all have to look for solutions that work in our environment. What works in America may not work in South Africa and vice versa. So I think that, you know, you need to have the long lens of a perspective on, on how one sees other countries. Uh, we don't know the ins and outs of their cultures necessarily. We know what we get fed a lot by the media. We know um, that it's very easy in this day and age to sort of take a headline approach and not to actually delve into situations. So that's what we're there for. We're to assist people to delve into situations and to get a, a proper understanding of what our foreign policy objectives are, what it is we want to do for our country and what we would like to achieve on the global stage. Um, and of course, being um, you know, a third world developing country, even though some people wouldn't call us that, but Matt, you've been to South Africa, you know that we're, we, we have very, very much, the majority of our country is, is, is not sort of um, New York, New York. It's very, very much, you know, battling to, to pay for its way and, 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 and to upgrade um, homes and infrastructures and whatnot. So clearly then uh, the uh, side of diplomacy that deals with economy and um, foreign investment is huge because we need that in order to allow us to grow, in order to allow us to provide better education for our people, um, hospitalization, medical care, all these things, um, sport, sporting opportunities. I mean, we've just watched the most brilliant young um, South African in the women's wheelchair finals at Wimbledon. Who would ever have thought that a South African wheelchair tennis player would be in the Wimbledon finals. But that's what our democracy has given us. It's given us options. Um, and we want to grow those options. And you've got a relatively new president who came in with a wave of optimism. Uh, his predecessor, I think, you know, challenged uh, in many ways by history and by the present. Uh, but talk about President Ramaphosa and uh, what I perceive from the outside looking in as optimism about the future in South Africa. From the president? Well, uh, optimism, in a confidence in him. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, he's, uh, he's been a good president. Um, I really believe that, you know, he is the man for this time. And um, he understands the imperatives of sorting out issues around corruption. Mm, the problem with corruption in South Africa is that it's very, very out there and very, very open. And with all due respect, I have to say, I don't think we have hit the levels of sophistication of corruption that you see in other countries, which is maybe why, come, why we're not so very good at it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I thank God that all this is happening now and not in 50 years down the line when there'd be no hope whatsoever of correcting this. We're still close enough to our liberation to remember what our ideals were, what our core values are, why we fought for democracy and why we fought, you know, for self-determination. And I think that certainly is one of the things that drives 
all right thinking people in South Africa. They don't want that to have been for nothing and it will not be for nothing, but lessons need to be learned and behaviors need to be adjusted and we'll get there. We're still very young. We've got a lot to learn still. You are, I mean, not, not even 30 years old yet as a democracy. Yeah. Incredible. And let's talk about the last year or so during COVID. It's been incredibly challenging for all of us. Um, talk about how you've weathered it, um, how your people in the High Commission in London have weathered it, and where things stand now. I know we're both fortunate that we've been vaccinated. Uh, and you told me earlier that things are starting to look more favorable in terms of the vaccines back home. But let's talk about the last year and the challenges that we've had and your perspective on those challenges. I think everyone's uh, just been concerned, confused, upset, annoyed, fearful. Um, but, you know, we, we have to keep hope alive and we have to believe that this isn't going to define who we are as a global village. Um, so for our side here in the UK, as a high commission, we have had a few people who have um, had COVID. They've recovered, thank God. And we've got people who have family members, of course, who um, had COVID some of whom have died, unfortunately. Um, everybody is suffering. Um, and so we need to be kind to each other. And the world is no longer ever going to be what it was. I think this year of 2020 has forced us to really recalibrate and to remember the things that are important. And at the end of the day, getting into work at eight o'clock in the morning is not as important as kissing your wife and children goodbye. So spend time with your family now and reconnect with the people that you love, your friends, um, because you don't know how long they're gonna be here for and you don't know how long you're gonna be here for. And I think that's the attitude very much of the mission that we take. We're very, we have become very flexible um, and very um, relaxed about uh, people's um, working hours. I couldn't care less if you come in from 10 until 3.30. I couldn't care because I'm assuming that the reason why you are coming in at those times, which we've discussed and I understand, is that you are one of the people who don't feel safe traveling during the rush hour. So you need to get in after the rush hour and you need to leave before. So long as you get your work done during the day, then that's absolutely fine. Rather that than that I hear that because you were trying so hard to get into work, that you got sick, nothing is worth it, not to you, not to your family. So I think now is the time when, you know, we have the time to think of each other. And I think that's really what we need to do. And I'm sure that, you know, if we do spend more time thinking of each other, a lot of the things that irritate us about each other will stop being so important, you know? Isn't it American phrase, don't sweat the small stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. And looking ahead to, you know, uh, the rest of 21 and 22, are there particular things, Tembi, that you are on your to-do list 
that as things start to open up that you're hoping to accomplish on behalf of the High Commission? Well, just to keep doing what I'm doing, um, I'd like very much, as you know, to um, have some kind of a, a South African event on Trafalgar Square um, and to let people know the things they don't know about South Africa. Um, you know, um, people have kind of put us in a bit of a cartoon. Um, we're the place to go for sort of great holidays, meaning Cape Town. We're the place that's got Nelson Mandela. Um, but there's so much more that uh, people need to know about South Africa. So I'm excited. They don't know about our scientists, how brilliant they are. They don't know about our artists, our musicians. Um, there's just a lot that is unknown. And as you know yourself, when you were there and you went to the jazz clubs, how absolutely fantastic they are. But people don't get that experience. And I would really like them to have it because I would like them to invite it here to America and to say, we want to learn more. Uh, we don't want to see the stereotypes anymore. We want to know the real people and have a real experience uh, in South Africa. Yeah, so that's something I would really like to do. Yeah, so true. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I, my grandparents were all immigrants who came here from Eastern Europe through Ellis Island. And they grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Queens. And as a young boy, you know, we had some money, but I, you know, grew up very much middle class. And, you know, my first job I got when I was 12 years old, I've, I've always worked to earn, you know, my own money and never imagined, you know, travel outside America, barely imagined travel within America as a little boy. Um, and I've been lucky enough now to go to South Africa, she's probably five or six times by now at least. And um, there's an indescribable feeling that you feel like you're home when you're in Africa, that no matter where you're from, no matter how you were raised, um, no matter what race, color, creed, religion, that when you're in, and I felt it very strongly in Johannesburg, that you feel like you're home. And I yeah. think you're absolutely right what you're saying and the opportunity to evolve the perception of the continent and your country in particular is a great challenge, but also a great opportunity for the world yeah. to really see it as it is. Agreed, 100%. Well, Tembi, thanks so much for doing this. It was a joy to talk to you, to see you. Bye for now.